Hey, what it do world? Welcome to Market Banter. I am your host, Dion Rabowen. I am a financial journalist. I write the Axios Markets newsletter. With me as always, the man, the myth, the legend, New York City comedian and working stiff, Dan Enfield. He's kind of pointing at the camera right now, but also he kind of missed it a little bit. But there it is. There it is, Dan. What's going on, buddy? How you doing? Nothing, man. Comedy comes back next month, so Woo! see if anybody will book me. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, where can the people see Dan Enfield? If well, you know, Gotham him? Comedy Club, where I had my show for years, uh, is reopening now. Are they going to reopen and uh, am I allowed back? It's anybody's guess, you know? <laughs> We'll have to we'll have to find out. We'll have to. Yeah, this is like, a, a lot like an of, episode uh, of Batman. Yeah, I think a lot of places are saying twenty five percent is not sustainable for them, so they're just going to wait until they can, you know, open up at a larger capacity. That's interesting. I think you'd want some money rather than no money. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess if you have to open, the cost of opening, I guess, for some of these places mm. is so high. You got to pay people to. You know, right. be there and stuff that a lot of them may say, hey, you know, screw it. We're just going to wait. Pay until the electric, can... pay the gas, yeah, pay all exactly. that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Pay off gotta the, buy uh, new... you know, for your protection. Right. Got to buy new tomatoes, you know, all that stuff. So, <laughs> uh, so they can throw of... them at the comedians? Right. Well, no, you know, you got to buy food. You know, you got to buy all that stuff that went oh, bad okay. in the last year. So I think right. maybe that's uh, probably scared some people off. Because I talked to one guy who owns a restaurant and he said we actually lose less being fully shut than we do opening at 25%. So hmm. who knows, man? That's, you know, that's an interesting wrinkle. I think a lot of people aren't talking about because uh, we, we have Jason Ware on. He's the CIO, chief investment officer and partner at Albion Financial. And he, like a lot of other people, is really bullish on the reopening and people are going to get their vaccines and everything's going to be great and the economy is going to grow with these huge numbers. But I think there's little things like that that a lot of people aren't factoring into the equation. For sure, yeah. And that's why, like, you know, everybody hammers Cuomo on the reopening stuff, and at least here in New York. But, you know, to be fair, I, I mean, as someone who lives in the New York City area, I think if everything opened at 100% tomorrow, I'm not sure anybody would be there just because a lot of people have, like, fled, you know? So I right. think that's really the big question is, you know, where do these people go? Is it temporary? And will they come back? I mean, that's really what I keep asking myself every day. So, yeah. And also, like, if you haven't been vaccinated, are you, do you feel confident to go back out? Right. Know, that's, that, I'm here in Arizona. Too. I'm here in Arizona, and, like, people, people really never stopped going out. Right. Like, it's, it's insane how packed bars and everything are around it's crazy. here. Crazy. Yeah. But then also, half the population gets COVID, so then they can't go out. So right. there's also that. It's true. Yeah. Arizona is like the Florida of the West Coast, really. It feels like that anyway. It is, yeah. It's the Florida of the West. Yeah, it except it's like going Florida in kind of the opposite there. direction. Yeah, what was that? I it kind of felt like Florida a little bit when I was out there. It reminded me of some neighborhoods of like yeah. Boca Raton and stuff, you know. Yeah, especially with like specifically with the Trump thing, it's very much like Florida. Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of like Trump people out here, and I don't, you know, like Arizona used to be home of the sort of like moderate Republican, but like then Trump came in and everybody got really excited about him out here. So anyway, well, the governor that. founded Cold but, Stone um, Creamery, right? That's what that was my first high school job. Yes. Okay. You're, yeah. You're dropping factual knowledge here. I can't, <laughs> I can't back that factoid. He's got that cold, I, yeah, got that sure cold stone money, cold stone money, that cold stone money, baby. Hey, right, yeah. Anyway. Um, got a great show. Like I said, we got Jason Ware. He is the, not only is he the chief investment officer, not only is he a partner, 
He is also the chief economist at Albion Financial. So we got a real smart cookie on the show with us. We're going to be getting to him. Uh, We're going to be talking the market, what's going on with these crazy bond yields, where that could go. We get into a lot of really good stuff. I thought Jason was, uh, I keep saying we have the perfect guests on Market Banter every week, but we really do have the perfect guests on every week. So we're going to get into our interview right here with Jason Ware, partner and CIO at Albion Financial. We have with us on the Market Banter Podcast, Jason Ware. He is the Chief Investment Officer and Partner at Albion Financial. Jason, how are you doing? Thanks for, uh, thanks for being with us here on Market Banter. Hey, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, appreciate the invite and the opportunity. Yeah, no, we appreciate you, uh, you coming on the show, especially now at a, at a time when the market seems to be going through gyrations that we might be experiencing a, a bit of a, a change in you know, the overall environment. So I love having someone like yourself who's a pro who's, you know, I, I announced you as the CIO and a partner, but also chief economist. So you're, you're a guy who I think is in prime position to talk through us, talk us through what's happening here. So that's my first question. Just how do you see the market right now? We've seen this sell-off in tech, a big day with a bounce back, but still tech right now on about a 7-8% correction from its last high. Uh, the yield environment, all that. Talk to me about the environment right now for the market. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And, and, and you know, I think as we look at the big picture, the variables that drove the market higher uh, since the lows last March are still intact. And those variables are we have a really accommodative Fed and low interest rates. In fact, if you look at the uh, uh, term structure uh, across uh, the Treasury market, we're still pretty much negative real yields, which is uh, you know very supportive to financial conditions in financial markets. We have uh, an economy that is in full recovery mode. We're probably going to see the biggest uh, boost in GDP uh, for any calendar year going back 35, 40 years, you know, our expectation is, you know, six, seven percent real GDP is uh, a possibility and will probably occur. Real GDP uh, this year. Real GDP. Six, seven yeah, exactly. percent. Wow. So, well, you yeah, think by the yeah, you think by the end of the year? Yeah, I think if you look at the full calendar year for 2021, as we get through uh, the course of the year and you know, inoculated consumers come out and start spending and we see that aggregate demand boom wall of savings a lot of folks want to get out and do stuff we're going to see a pretty big year for 2021. Hmm. so i have two questions about that because it seems like everybody's bullish everybody's predicting this big year Uh, my two questions are number one on that wall of savings you talked about right don't you think it's possible that we've entered a new environment where people just save more i mean that savings rate jumped up to i think it was 20 percent the personal savings rate last month even though we're supposed to be you know rolling out of this covid lockdown environment yeah, I mean, I think the savings rate is probably at a fairly high plateau. I don't know if it's a permanent plateau, but it's one that will stick around for longer than just, you know, the next 12 months or next 18 months. I think it's to your point, you know, human behavior. And we saw this, you know, in the years after the Great Depression, human behavior is difficult to change. So once you get ingrained in a certain um, mindset, which is, you know, COVID came out of nowhere and I lost my job or my income got cut down. And what if this something like this were to occur next year or the year after? It changes how we right. behave with our money. So, yeah, I think there's something to be said that not all of that savings is going to come out into the economy instantly once everyone's vaccinated. 
but I do think that the one and a half trillion in excess savings, and that's about where we are in the US economy, I think there's a big portion of that that comes out. And we actually did an analysis that looked at this. And if all of it came out in year one, which is not going to occur, but if that were to be the case, that would be about a nine to 10% real GDP growth rate for the economy. Um, we're not going to get that, but I think six if, or if seven, all of the savings money well, came out, coming up. Yeah, you mean, if yes, all the savings all, money came out. That is correct. If all so if every dollar that was saved, people started spending this coming year, or this right. current year. On top, on top of the structural growth rate of the economy and the momentum uh, the economy has, if everyone were to spend all of the money that was been doled out in the last 12 months that's sitting in savings accounts, we would see around a 9% boom in real GDP. We're not going to get that. We're going to get some of it to come out, but we're not going to get all of it. But it's still going to be a strong growth year. Hmm. And the other question I have just with regard to that is because 6-7% real growth is a big number. Um, how do we – how much of that is on account of the government just sending out checks? You know, Obviously, the Fed's got interest rates at zero. They're pumping a bunch of QE, buying bonds, et cetera, et cetera. We got this $1.9 trillion that looks like it's now going to come through with that number. $5 trillion in just the past year um, in aid from Congress. How much of this big growth year is due to that? And how much of it is the structural factor, structural factors, including, you know, the, the inoculations and things like that that you talked about? Yeah. Well, I think the structural factors haven't changed much, um, you know, over the last 10 years. You know, if you were to take away uh, the cyclical bump we're going to see in the economy this year because you know, if, first of all, we're lapping some really easy year-over-year -year comparisons. Last year at this time, the economy right. was shutting down. It was grinding to a halt. So just anniversarying those um, growth rates is going to produce a fairly large uh, uptick once the economy reopens in earnest. But in addition to that, the structural growth rate has been around 2% for the better part of the last decade. I don't think that's – nothing's been changed over the last 12 months that suggests to us that looking at over the next five years, we're going to see 3 or 4% permanently. I think we settle back in to the 2 2.5% growth rate based on – demographics based on productivity based on a whole host of other things so when you build in and layer that two and a quarter percent let's call it with anniversary some very easy comps on economic uh, statistics and then this big boom of people coming out and spending because of pent-up demand and being locked in their homes with a massive amount of savings i think that's how you build in these growth rates that we're looking at and i would say that you know back of the envelope the stimulus from uh, Congress, these checks to, to households, et cetera, I, I think probably will amount for two to three percentage points of that growth. So it's meaningful. Oh, wow. Hmm. Okay. So then we get, you talk about the six to seven percent real growth. How much do you expect the savings rate to decline? Where do you expect the savings rate to be, let's say, six months from now and a year from now? Yeah, it's a good question. It's going to be a process, not an event. Um, so I, I, I suspect, and, and we've, we've looked at this as, uh, as well at Albion, and I think it's fair to assume that the glide path will take a couple of years as that money is being spent. I mean, obviously, it's like a bathtub, right? I mean, you get water coming in, but water is still draining. So it doesn't all just go out at once. Uh, it's a process. And I, I think, you know, we probably could see um, the savings rate get down to 6 7 8% ultimately before it starts to settle in to uh, to a, a more steady path. And that wouldn't be out of step with what we saw post-great financial crisis. We saw savings rates that were more elevated vis-a-vis uh, -vis the prior 10 years and actually the prior 20 years to that. So I think there's going to be a fair amount of savings still in the economy. And that's a good thing. That's that's not a bad thing. That's, that's a good thing. Hmm. Dan, you got a question? Jump in here. No, this is all really interesting stuff. I mean, I guess we'll have to wait and see if 
COVID really does recede and then people get out there and start spending because they keep talking about other surges and stuff like that that can still happen. I hope that doesn't happen. Yeah. But, yeah. If, if I may, one point that I, I don't think is being talked about a lot but will be, I think, in the coming 6 to 12 months is the uh, component of deferrals. So we've had, you know, this, these rental assistance and housing assistance and a whole host of obligations that you don't find showing up in traditional debt statistics, but still are real for the uh, a lot of uh, a lot of American households. So that is, you know, there are going to be several thousands, several thousands of dollars in deferred rent payments that probably will come due for people. So mm. how much of the savings rate is going to be allocated toward making back payments on rent versus new demand? And I think that's, that's a good point. I didn't, I didn't think about that. Yeah. yeah. So we'll see how that yeah. flushes out. Mm. So then as we look towards the market, right, we've had this kind of rotation. And I pointed out in the, the Axios Markets newsletter that the rotation is – there's a lot of talk about the rotation from growth to value. But really it just seems like to me when I look at a lot of the numbers, it's rotation from tech growth to just kind of non-tech growth, right? Some of the biggest beneficiaries have been – Disney, which has a crazy PE, I think it's over 270. Uh, MasterCard, which has a PE over 60, uh, price to earnings ratio. Other companies that are just kind of in this reopening lane, but they're not actually cheap uh, when it comes right. to valuations. Is that what you see when you look at the market or are you seeing more of this quote unquote growth to value rotation? I think it's both. And I know that's not a satisfying answer, but I'll try to- <laughs> It is why. not. No, no. So, so with Disney, for example, your observation is correct. If you look at a trailing PE, it's, it's ridiculous. And that's because their earnings were crushed last year because their parks and resorts shut down. And their, you know, right. basically sales and cash flow went to zero. So on a backward-looking basis, some of these PEs look insane. But if you look at Disney on a forward PE basis, it's trading around 35 times earnings. Now, that's higher than Disney has been historically, but it also has this new secular growth tailwind of Disney+. Plus. We saw yesterday that they're now over 100 million subscribers. It took them 16 months to get there. It took Netflix right. seven years. So there's certainly yeah. part of that story that warrants a higher P.E. Getting away from Disney, there are other parts of the market where, you know, Visa, use MasterCard as an example. We own Visa for clients. Visa operates in a duopoly with MasterCard. So there's going to be a premium on that stock because it's in a secular growth space. The transformation from cash to digital payments is not going away. We're probably in the fourth or fifth inning globally in that story. So that deserves to be trading at 30 to 40 mm. times earnings. Meanwhile, though, there's a there's an economic reopening story as well. I don't know if you guys saw Visa's cross-volume payments last year and they're, basically their volumes overall got crushed. And of course they did because the economy was in a deep recession. But as that comes back online, people are going to be spending more this year. So Visa has a cyclical tailwind in addition to the secular but growth Jason. Uh, features that we like about it. Jason, can I just ask you real quick on Visa? And this is true of MasterCard as well. You talk about the global environment. I would say a lot of the globe is moving away from credit card payments, away from processors like Visa. Square is in that space, but also Alibaba, Tencent, and, and the Chinese model of, fi of fintech payments, I would say is really growing while things like Visa and MasterCard aren't in those spaces in you know the East and, and in that model that's growing, right? No, well, that, that's, that's partly true, yes, and Visa and MasterCard are the toll collectors. So while they're not creating the dongles that Square creates, if you use a Square payment fa form factor, whether that's online or whether that's you know at a vendor's, uh, you sure. know, uh, I guess I'm talking more. You're, you're Alibaba still using and Visa and MasterCard. 
Yeah, but most of these still work through, unless you're using Bitcoin, most of these are still going through the traditional payment networks. And that is an area that Visa and MasterCard dominate, uh, and, and we don't see that receding anytime soon. I mean, every time you make a payment through PayPal, and I won't say every time, most times you make a payment through PayPal, because there are certainly other features in PayPal where you can make payments in various ways. But most of the time, you're using your debit or credit card number to make those payments, and that's still a toll that Visa is collecting along the way. So they're not going to be muscled out of that space. They are very much in the center of that ecosystem and yeah. should continue. Mm. Well, no, I guess what I'm saying is they're in the center of that ecosystem here in the U.S. and a little bit less so, but still in Europe. But that Asian model of Tencent, Alibaba, fintech payments and processors, they've kind of cut those companies out. To, to some degree, but I don't think it's enough to take their growth to zero in Asia. I mean, they still have a very long runway of, of processing more and more volumes over the next decade, in our view. Maybe instead of being 30 percent. Uh, CAGR over the next decade, maybe it's 20% because some of these insurgent fintech companies are coming in and taking a little bit of market share. But the, 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 the pie is so large and these two companies, and Visa in particular for us, is so dominant that we're still willing to bet on that in a very uh, comfortable and confident way. The moat mm. is wide and the return on, returns on invested capital are huge. I think it's going to be hard to, to, to chip away at that. You got me convinced. And you By the way, thank you for reminding me to cancel my Disney Plus uh, you know, memberships. I got it for free with Verizon. So don't do, yeah. don't, don't do that. No, no. Wait, let's let's talk about that really quickly because yeah, I'm like Dan. A lot of these Disney Plus, you know, consumers and and subscribers that they call that they're calling them are free subscribers that came in. Like I signed up for, I think it was like boost mobile or verizon wireless with my internet and i got free right. 12 months of disney plus and i'm still right, using right. that yeah. but the second that that's over so so I, i'm like dan i'm dan, getting rid of it no, okay, <laughs> i'm still gonna do cry when i watch bambi though you know do, do you guys have kids <laughs> i do no, have a little kid. well dan yeah, has yeah, kids yeah yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. That, that, you have kids okay so yeah. i know if i were to cut my disney plus i would be cut out of the household so <laughs> that's not gonna happen for me I think everyone right. has their own levers, but um, by and large, it's kind of like the way I view it is it's, it's a bit like holding the ocean back with a broom. There are going to be some areas where you're going to be successful, but by and large, the number of people that want to have Disney Plus is immense. They're talking about 250 million paid subscribers by 2024. By the way, they thought they'd be at 100 million by 2024 last year. We think that continues. There's a lot of people that want it, and the prices are going to go up too. I hate saying that because I pay for it. And you know, 250 it million. It Wait, how many Americans are there? 300 million. No, no, yeah, it's well, globally. Glo it's global. It's oh, global. globally. Yeah. Okay, I was. But I, I thought Disney's you global, baby. Disney's global. Disney's global. Disney's global. not even. This is, they're not even worried about us here in the U.S. Not even. This, this is cradle to grave global business, and, and wow. it's, it's just it's powerful. Yeah, yeah. All right, and you touched on it a little bit, but this, you know, the environment where rates have just been skyrocketing up higher, yeah. and I, I think what's been interesting is you talked about we're still in kind of a negative real yield environment, but. It's been the pace of rates going up. And I've heard folks say 1.5% is the cap. I've heard folks say 1.75, 2. Um, I want to know from you where you think we get to on the 10-year yield, which is, I think, the most important story that people, everybody's watching, but it seems to me like everybody's getting it wrong. What are your thoughts about where we go and, and the big story on the 10-year? Yeah, asking me to project where I think the 10-year yield is going to be uh, smacks similar to the question of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. But um, nevertheless, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll wow. attempt to make, yeah, 
Uh, well, no, okay. nobody gets it right. There, nobody gets it right. There was a Wall Street Journal forecasting, uh, uh, I don't want to call it game, but it's kind of a game last year where they asked like the strategists at the top 50 Wall Street banks where they thought rates would be. And I should show, I wish I had the, I wish I could show you the chart. It is so ridiculous. No one was even close. So it's not that this, it's not that these are dumb people. It's just that this is really hard. Forecasting interest rates is really hard. But with that said. Yeah, but that's, but that's why you get the big bucks, Jason. That's why you yeah. get the big dollars. I'm gonna I'm gonna have you talk to my CEO about that. Uh, the big <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna let okay. you negotiate for me. Um, no, okay. but uh, no, but to be fair, I, I think directionally, if the economy booms in the way that we think it's going to boom, and I think if 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 inflation does perk up a little bit, and we think that you know just to give you a little bit of primer on inflation, you know, there's going to be a cyclical boost here coming. There's no doubt about that. I think everyone agrees. Bull, bear, everyone agrees that over the next six months, we're going to see CPI and PCE perk up. Um, it's probably going to get north of 3% because we're going to be lapping some really easy comparisons. Ener- energy prices wow. are higher and we're going to have a cyclical boom. Nevertheless, are you going our- to say the T word? What's the T word? Transitory. You gotta- oh, no, I don't. No, no. Okay, Leading. good. Okay. Ah, boom. Same word. Same word. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. So I think it's going to be short-lived and, and, you know, it'll probably settle back into a more structural path of 2% or even less than that core PCE over the next four or five years. I think the Fed understands that and that's the good news. But as we're thinking about how that feeds into treasury yields, which is at the core of your question, those things all seem to be lining up to suggest that yields will probably continue to rise higher. What's the level? I don't know what the level is. Maybe 2%, maybe 2.5% over the next, let's call it 18 months is probably reasonable. I think if the economy grows in the way that we expect it to. But it's not, as you alluded to, it's not the level that matters so much. It's the speed of the increase. You know, what we've seen over the last few months and what's jarred the market to the degree that it has is the pace of the yield increase has been has been quick. I mean, we were at 50 basis points in August and now we're at 1.5%. I mean, that's a 3 X rise in yields over six months. That's pretty hard to digest for markets. Um, but it's not wholly unworkable for stocks to see yields at these levels, to see yields at higher levels than where we are. And it doesn't mean the bull market has to end. Just real quick, if I may, go back to July of 2016. July of 2016 through the fall of 2018, we saw the yield on the 10-year go from 1.4%, which is about where we are today, to three and a quarter percent. You know what the stock market did over that two plus year period? was up around 40%. And technology outperformed the broader market. I'm not saying that's going to happen this time, but using that as an analog to how rising yields and rising stock prices are actually typically familiar bedfellows, I think we can get there as long as we have corresponding economic growth, inflation is not problematic, and the rise is is, is gentle enough to not scare people out of stocks. It's a great point. Jason, we've got to let you go, but quick question, give you 30 seconds to answer. Is there a worry as you see prices, you know, continue to rise? Food prices are going crazy. We've got um, the NFIB survey just came out, said 25% of all their companies are raising prices. Is there a chance that CPI, PCE are kind of measuring the wrong things and we do get inflation, but it's just not being filtered through in some of these surveys? And how does that impact the market? It's a really great question. It's a composition question of how you measure a basket of goods and services. Um, right. I think what MIT economists would tell you is that they have this billion prices uh, model that would show CPI and PCE tracking in a way that's very similar to what our 
core inflation statistics tell us is true. So I think even if you broaden that out to other areas of the economy and people's household budgets, what you see with CPI and PCE are, are, are pretty strong indications of the general price level. With that said, I, I think it's also important to recognize that we have some pretty strong um, secular disinflationary forces that are at play and will continue to be at play for the next decade. The, the growth of technology, which is disinflationary, demographic headwinds, both here in the United States and in China, in Western Europe, old Japan, population, et cetera. Chip. Exactly. So these things aren't going away. Um, we're going to see a boost to the cyclical part of inflation, but ultimately uh, productivity, demographics and uh, technology are globalization, supply chains. These are all the things that are really going to matter to the longer term trajectory of prices. And I think those are fairly benign. And I think that's good for the stock market. Uh, if you back out the aperture and look at it on like a two to three year basis as opposed to a two to three month basis. All right. So basically, stock market keeps booming. Keep your money in the market so you can keep balling out of control. And uh, anything else? Well, I think Nick Murray said it best when he said, if you think the stock market is high today, wait 10 years. Well, there you go. I, I like it. That's a very bullish thing to say. Jason Ware, CIO and partner, Albion Financial. Thank you so much for being with us on Market Vanter. All right, so that was Jason Ware, again, CIO, partner, chief economist at Albion Financial. Smart guy. Um, smart guy, yeah, yeah, super smart guy. Also, tatted up. I don't, I don't know oh, if Oh, is he had, really? Oh, I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw, I, I don't know about it all, but I saw that he had the kind of uh, the sleeve going on there underneath the sleeve. So Interesting. That was... That was interesting. We'll have to compare tattoos one of these days. Yeah, there should be a um, term for that for like people that you work with that only do like the long sleeve, and then you go to like a company picnic or something, and then you they have like a sleeve yeah. of tats. There's like a lot we of people should. like that. Yeah, we should come up with a term for that. Uh, we'll work on that. If anybody's yeah. got any ideas, hit Dan yeah. or I on Twitter with what we should call those people. Hit me up because it's it's always it's always a surprising thing. Like I always see him on CNBC. He's, you know, he's got the suit and everything, but mm. yeah, I think like he was, he was adjusting something and I was like, Oh, I see you. I see you. Oh, oh. Um, but yeah, I mean, what's been really interesting the past week, two weeks, maybe we're at week three, um, tech, the NASDAQ, especially the NASDAQ 100 just been getting killed by these rising bond yields. And I keep hearing from people that, you know, it just it's because the economy's good and actually it's a good thing for tech to come down and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not so sure. But Dan, you have thoughts on this. Well, I think it's really interesting because I really like I think it was a really odd. I mean, again, a total layperson here, but I think it was a really odd dynamic that was created in the past year of covid, because I think the prior president, from my understanding, really didn't like a lot of big tech. And he had a lot of like yeah. anti big tech rhetoric, but he also mm -hmm. hung his hat on the stock market being good. And that right. really big Which tech is, is what was tech. keeping the stock market afloat. So it was almost kind of like, do you bite the hand that feeds you kind of a thing? Because, you know, like retail or stocks where like, you know, cruise lines and all those kind and hotels that were decimated by COVID, those companies certainly weren't going to grow in the last year, but big tech was. So it was almost like you kind of had no choice but to, whether you liked them or didn't like them, kind of get behind them. So now I'm very curious to know, um, you know, with this new Biden regime, because I read on Bloomberg yesterday that he actually is putting in a lot of antitrust people that are going to bust up a lot of these big tech companies. So yeah, that's very yeah. cool, which is kind of like counter to what the rhetoric was before, you know, so... 
My uh, my Axios colleague Kim Hart actually had a story about that that came out this morning, um, basically saying that because Biden has prioritized COVID so much and because he's had so much trouble getting his nominees through the Senate, that like big tech has gotten this kind of I don't know what you'd call it like a three month reprieve. Yeah, and there's really no there's no end in sight for it. Like as soon as he gets his people in there, if he can get the people in who are you know antitrust busters then big tech could be in trouble. But until then, they've kind of got all this time to sort of do what they want. So yeah, Kim wrote a story about that this morning that Ooh, I thought was really, really interesting. Out. And yeah, and you, you, you talked you about it too. These, but... uh, what did you say? No, I said, no, you go ahead. Finish what you were going to say. And you were saying you were going to talk about these bond yields, right? You've been following those and stuff? Oh, oh yeah. You know me. I love bonds, baby. I love bonds. Love them, baby. Love them. People don't people don't talk about bonds enough. Now, I was just going to say in relation to what you said about tech driving the market, I mean, tech really has driven the market for like the past 15 years or so. And it's really because our economy has shifted from being one that was manufacturing driven and all that. And then it was kind of like services driven and it still is largely services driven, but it's a lot of tech. I mean, the five biggest companies in the U.S. are all tech companies and Tech companies make up, I think, the the five biggest tech companies are worth something like 8.2 or 8.3 trillion dollars. And that obviously is a big part of the economy. I mean, 8.2 trillion is nothing to sneeze at. So mm. as so tech goes, com- eventually... Five companies, you said? Five companies, yeah. Wow. Um, let me see if I can name them off the top of my head. It's Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, aka Alphabet, and Facebook. Are the wow. five? I think in that order, but I might have screwed something up in there. Um, but yeah, those are the five, and they're combined worth about you know, depending on where the stock market is, eight trillion, eight and a half trillion, whatever it is. So it's yeah, they're they're a huge part of not just the stock market, the Nasdaq, the S and P, but a huge part of our overall U.S. economy. And so if they're threatened by these rising yields, that means the economy's threatened. Mm. See so yeah, again to get into this inflation thing, and I talked about it a little bit with with Jason. But one thing I think is happening is inflation isn't showing up in the traditional metrics of inflation. And what I mean by that is like the CPI report today showed inflation still you know reasonable, rising a little bit, but you know nothing to get crazy scared about. But if you look at world food prices, it's been hitting a new high. Every single month. It's been going up, I think, for the past nine or ten months straight. Um, you also look at a number of these you know, reports from whether it's the PMI reports, which is where they survey businesses and they say, are costs going up, going down, is employment going mm. up, going down, whatever. Costs are going up more than they ever have for producers. You've got a number of businesses saying they're going to have to increase prices to keep up. Commodities mm. prices, steel, lumber, all that stuff, the stuff that goes into making everything, those prices are going up. And I think because rent prices aren't going up because of all the government intervention and because salaries aren't going up because employers are cheap and don't want to pay people, and that's a cyclical trend, people are thinking that inflation isn't going to get and isn't going to get to problematic levels. And my question is, what if inflation already is at problematic levels and we just aren't seeing it because of the way these metrics are set up? Because like the the number of companies in the NFIB, which is the small business, um, what is it, lobbying group, that they do a survey of small businesses every month. Their survey says the highest number of businesses are, are raising prices since 2008. 
that tells me that prices are going up, right? More mm-hmm. so than 1.8, 1.7%. Well, I feel like whenever I go out to a bar or something in Yonkers or in Westchester, prices have gone way up, especially in the city too. Right. Yeah. And and everybody you talk to says that. Everybody says the exact same thing. Whenever I write about inflation, everybody's like, oh man, you got it, you got it way wrong. Inflation's going way up. I go to the grocery store. I go here. I go there. The prices are through the roof. And so I think this, a lot of that's being missed in our inflation metrics. And I think that's causing economists to underappreciate what's actually happening with inflation. And I think what the Fed is doing, trying to encourage inflation, trying to you know get inflation high and at 2%, mm-hmm. I, th- I think we ought to be more worried about it than we are. But again, this is a thing that people have said for years and years and years. And I'm not the first person to say inflation's getting out of control. I just think we're in a place right now where we may not be measuring it correctly. Mm-hmm. And that could be a bigger problem than a lot of people are letting on. And maybe that's what the market's reacting to with this tech sell-off is just mm. the understanding of that, right? That's my thought. Mm. Interesting. I guess time will yeah, tell. It's Time will tell. Time will tell. So, um, you know, what is was it buy? Uh, I don't know what to buy. I guess buy tech stocks. <laughs> I don't know what you buy in that environment because you can't buy bonds because bonds are going to get killed. Uh, buy gold, although gold's getting killed. So what do you do? What do you buy? What do you do? I guess you buy Bitcoin or Dogecoin. You know, Dogecoin is that. killing the game right now. It's gotta, crazy. Got to buy Dogecoin. Got to buy the Doge. <laughs> All right. I think that's going to do it for our show. Dan, anything you wanted to add? No, this is great, man. Looking forward to next week. Got to buy the Doge. All right. For Dan Enfield, New York City comedian and working man, I am Dion Rabowin, financial journalist. Please, if you haven't, sign up for the Axios Markets newsletter. If you ain't got that, go get that. Um, we'll be back with another brand spanking new episode of Market Banter next week. Thank everybody, all of you, for tuning in. Uh, and yeah, please come join us next week when we do it all again.